According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to turn to three separate passages all at the same time. You're going to turn to three separate passages all at the same time this morning. I don't know how you're going to do it. I was showing Casey before we got started. This is a saved workspace that I created and then saved. It's called Synoptic Gospels. And it places uh, six windows in three columns. The Matthew column, the Mark column, and the Luke column from left to right. And these are the passages we want to consider. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 37. In parallel with Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. In parallel with Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. If you have to start with one, start with the one in Mark. We're going to start with Mark this morning. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. But actually, we're going to do a lot of bouncing back and forth. So if you do use little bookmarks or ribbons or pencils or whatever you use, you do want to find at least Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 11. Because we will do some flipping back and forth between those. Another advantage in the software department is not only do we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the parallel columns, but behind each of those windows, you're looking at three, but there's really six of them up there because behind each of those windows is linked the, uh, the Greek text for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each set being linked in that way, then when one window scrolls, the other one's going to scroll right with it. And that's the, uh, the benefit of having that available. All right. This is episode 24 in the Harmony of the Gospels. For those that have been following in the Harmony of the Gospels outline, event number 24. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer in a moment. Before I do, let's just comment on what you see on the title screen here. This is episode 24, Jesus Accused of Blasphemy, but there's an important note. The Luke passage is a parallel passage, and we will teach the Luke passage this morning as a parallel to both Matthew 12 and Mark 3. However, this is not the place in Luke's sequence where Luke places this chapter. So the Luke passage is a parallel passage here for doctrinal development and study, but it is also placed later in the harmony of the Gospels, that is, for chronological study. And so if you happen to have one with you, or you go home and you double-check the references when you get home, if you examine your Harmony of the Gospels handout, you will find that as we approach the cross in the, uh, in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, episode number 11, in fact, it's on the same page, it's on page 2 of your Harmony handout, but uh, episode 24 in the Galilean ministry and episode 11 in the last Judean and Perean ministry, if you will examine both of those, you will note that they cover this material from Luke chapter 11, verses uh, 14 and following. In the one that we'll get to down the road in the last Judean and Perean ministry, uh, that one actually goes beyond verse 23 and takes it all the way down through verse 36 in that Luke 11 context. So anyway, I wanted to bring that to your attention, that this is a place where um, 
the chronology is a bit different between Matthew and Mark and Luke. Luke places this message much later, and, uh, and we will discuss that as we examine the nature of Luke's account. Not to say it's contradictory, because of course it's not. It's complementary. And when we examine the nature of this, it's an accusation. The skeptics, the haters, the Pharisees, and so forth, they're saying, well, he's, he's, he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And uh, who's to say that that only happened one time? It probably happened dozens of times on several uh, demon uh, expulsions that he would cast out a demon and then a Pharisee would say, oh, well, he's doing that by the power of, of Beelzebul and, uh, and so forth. So in all likelihood, as with many of these episodes, we are viewing a, uh, a typical one. We're viewing one that happened multiple times and what's recorded for us is simply one instance that is typical of many other instances as well. So we have no problem with Matthew and Mark placing it here in this context and then Luke placing it in a much later context because it probably happened in uh, on multiple occasions throughout his life. All right, that being said, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together. I thank you that we can approach the scriptures on a faith basis, that we can approach under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that we can be relaxed, Father, about uh, issues and matters that uh, those who hate you and those who hate your and deny your word uh, utilize them on, as, a, as a basis for attack. They use it as a basis for criticism. They find what they think are discrepancies. They find what they... Uh, trumpet as being um, contradictions and so on the basis of, of their wisdom they use these things to uh, to deny your existence and to deny the truth of, of what they really wanted to deny in the first place father we we recognize that for what it is it's a world of darkness that embraces the darkness and it hates the light father we understand that for what it is we thank you for the simplicity of purity of devotion to christ we thank you that our privilege is to study to show ourselves approved and to do so on a faith basis and with a relaxed mental attitude that uh, all Scripture is indeed God-breathed and profitable. If we encounter what we think is, is a contradiction, we realize that our understanding needs, uh, needs to be corrected. And Father, if we encounter something that troubles us, we can also rest confidently that when, uh, when you desire to make things clear, you will guide us into the truth. So, Father, we rejoice in the opportunity today. We ask that you would open our, the eyes of our understanding, make clear to us what we need to understand, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in particular, this is a passage that may be a struggle for some, and I'll just include myself in that, because reading from Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, we're going to go take it on down through verse 30. And in the context of this, of course, we have uh, what we see in verse uh, 29 there. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And we're left with what's typically referred to as the unpardonable sin and, and so forth. And that leads to a lot of questions. I think Cliff Beveridge asked it on a Wednesday night, not even a month ago. You know, what is the deal here with this unpardonable sin? Realizing, obviously, that this is an area of Scripture, that there are lots of different understandings of it interpretations of it and i think we can we can reject the real obvious ones that are that are grinding a theological point and so forth you know we can reject the ones that say oh well this is talking about losing your salvation 
because we recognize you can't lose your salvation. All right? So just out of hand, we can dismiss the ones that we know that are inconsistent with all of Scripture. And then the ones that we can't just immediately dismiss, they have to be considered. We have to examine them and in the context of the passage come to a determination as far as what uh, we are convicted of in, in the uh, understanding of this text. All right, I'm going to start with Luke, I'm, I'm sorry, with Mark as the first gospel that we'll look at because the uh, first point of study comes out of Mark and Mark alone, and then we'll uh, bounce back and forth between them from that point on. Let's look at Mark. It's the shortest of the accounts, 11 verses here. Verse 20 says, And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. Verse 27, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whoever blasphemy, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. All right, that takes us down through verse 30. That's the shortest of the accounts. We will relate it to Matthew 12 and Luke 11 here shortly, uh, as we spot differences and, uh, and distinctions between them. All right. Yeah, let's just give you point one to start with. This episode takes place in Capernaum. Remarkably, it is described as home. It's a remarkable term. Given the nature of the Lord's ministry and the fact that he had no home, so to speak, in terms of a residence, in terms of property, in terms of ownership, uh, we're told that uh, the birds have their nests, the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he himself did not possess uh, property or, or own a home. He made arrangements for his family to have a place to stay. He, uh, he was faithful in his temporal life responsibilities. He made certain that his mother had a place to stay, that his brothers and his sisters were taken care of. Uh, even while he's hanging on the cross, he's making the arrangements for Mary's care demonstrating that, that uh, the temporal life details don't stop just because you're in ministry. If anything, this text here demonstrates that temporal life details, they may not stop, but they may become overwhelming because of the ministry. And we'll have some comment to make on that as well. Nevertheless, the phrase home here is rather interesting that he came home. This was the base of operations. This was the place that he would then uh, launch forth to a variety of different speaking tours. He went from city to village, we've learned. He had a very thorough ministry throughout the Galilean region, but this was the base. 
This was the home base of operations. This would have been, uh, he would have had one uh, domicile that he would reside in when he would be staying here in Capernaum. He would have one synagogue that he would regularly uh, worship in and teach in when he was in Capernaum. Uh, but it was from here that he would then launch out into the variety of the speaking tours as he would go from village to city, as we've examined it already. But it is interesting that it's called home, as uh, it's an awkward thing for anybody. If you ask somebody, you know, well, where's home? Well, what do you mean by that? You're talking about where I was born, where I was raised, or where I live now. All three of which could be considered home one way or another. In some cases, if it was too long ago and, and you don't really identify with it anymore, then it's not home anymore. Uh, in other cases, maybe it is because you return there with some frequency and you still consider your heritage there as a part of your, uh, a part of your person. All right. So, um, even the Lord could say Bethlehem was home. He could say that Nazareth was home. Here he could say Capernaum is home. Does he have claim to Jerusalem? Could he claim Jerusalem as his home? Absolutely. That's where his throne is. He belongs there. It's the city of David, and he's the son of David. Okay? David himself had to claim both Bethlehem and Jerusalem, both of which were called the city of David in, in a particular context. So we do find this uh, as a comment, and it is unique to Mark. It is not the, the phrase, the term home is not used of, uh, in Matthew or Luke. Uh, but Mark does record the uh, the nature of Capernaum and its special place here for for the Lord. Now we do also notice that there were demands that were growing. So point A, the demands of the gathered crowds were such that no personal time remained in any given day. The demands of the gathered crowds were such that no personal time remained in any given day such as Mark points out. Remember, Mark is the gospel of the servant. He thinks of these kind of things. Matthew is presenting Christ the king. Luke presents Christ in his humanity, Christ the man. John presents Christ in his deity, the Son of God. But Mark is proclaiming Christ the servant. And so many of the details that we find in the gospel of Mark are geared towards things that a servant would observe. A servant is concerned about when meals are taken. The servant is concerned about how does the serving take place. The servant is concerned about many of these details. And he's pointing out here that, as we read in verse 20, he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. <laughs> you know, the Lord and his disciples, when do you get a break? When do you get time to just stop? Because the crowds are always, you know, at the door. You know, we need healing. We need a demon cast out. We need this. We need that. We need you to make more food for us. And we haven't even gotten to the, the, the bread of heaven message as he multiplies the loaves and the fishes and some of those things. It's already to this point and it will get worse. It will get worse. So it does make an interesting observation. This is something that we discuss as we get involved in training ministries. As we, you know, there's more than just learning Hebrew and Greek and so forth to become a pastor. There's also the anticipation that when you do enter into ministry, um, is there such a thing as personal time anymore? Is there such a time as a personal life? Does your wife understand that you're going to get phone calls seven days a week, 24 hours a day? Is she prepared to live with that? Or is she going to hate you for it when those events come up? 
to such an extent they could not even eat a meal. You're trying to sit down for dinner. It's the first time you've seen uh, your, your spouse all day, and you sit down, you're getting ready to eat, and there's a knock on the door, or the phone rings, and, oh, well, put it in the refrigerator, I'll microwave it when I get home, that kind of thing. Okay? It's the nature of it. Not saying it's a problem, not saying that it's uh, sinful or wrong or whatnot, but that's what it was, and the Lord dealt with it. Then his family, <laughs> his own people, that is, his own kinsmen, his relatives, these would be his immediate family, Mary and his brothers and his sisters, probably some cousins and whoever else. Your family doesn't always understand what's up with the ministry. <laughs> Your family can't figure out why you never come to the family reunions anymore. You say, well, duh, you're scheduling them on Sundays. You know, you weren't so such blithering idiots and you maybe schedule it on a Friday or a Saturday, then yeah, we'll stop in. But you hold them on a Sunday and you hold them five-hour drive away, well, yeah, we're not going to be there, sorry. And if they have problems with it, they say, well, how come you're not coming to any of our family reunions? They say, well, how come you're not coming to any church services? You know, spell it right out. The family won't necessarily be like-minded when it comes to ministry. And we see that under point B. Jesus' earthly family thought that the entire ministry was out of control and that Jesus needed to come back to reality. The expression there is that he needed to come to his senses, that he had lost his senses. In other words, he's out of his mind. Jesus' earthly family thought that the entire ministry was out of control and that Jesus needed to come back to reality. I expect that it was a pretty profitable carpentry trade that he was involved in. I expect that it was he was making some pretty good money at it. I mean, we don't know. We know that Joseph was alive when Jesus was 12, but we never see Joseph again. We don't know how soon Joseph dies, how young Jesus was when he becomes the man of the house. When he is working full time, and we know four brothers by name, we don't know how many sisters, but they're, they're listed in plurality, so that's at least two sisters, maybe more. But four brothers, at least two sisters, so there's minimum six children, plus him. Minimum seven children, plus Mary, means there's eight mouths to feed at whatever point that Joseph dies. So, we know he's a carpenter. He's the son of a carpenter. We know that he had business arrangements. And uh, we don't know how profitable he was or whatnot, but we have to. We know he was sinless. <laughs> so we know he was a good worker. He was a hard worker. Um, whatever else. I mean, if, if anyone could be a, uh, a, a successful business person, it would be somebody that's sinless. <laughs> so and I would expect he was very profitable in that. And so he, he gives up that ministry at about 30 years of age, or at least 30 years of age, probably up to 35 years of age, and um, starts preaching the Bible. I can just imagine James and Jude and, his, and Simeon and Joseph, his brothers, and, you know, this isn't going to last. You know, okay, you know, big brother, he's always been, you know, kind of, Religious, he's always been a Bible thumper. He's always been, you know, Mr. Goody Tushoes. So, okay, fine. He wants to teach Bible, great. He can do that, but it's not going to last. He'll want to come back for the money. See, because he's going broke. He's starving to death over here. You know, I've been told the same thing. 
Stan Newton's been told the same thing. Other pastors I know have been told the same thing. They're, they're passing uh, very lucrative career field opportunities and so forth. And, oh, you, you're not going to last. In any event, uh, <laughs> they're going to take custody of him. They're going to take custody. You know how controlling that is? Why is it that, every, that legalism wants to be in control of everybody else's life? They're going to take custody of him as if somehow they're the authority and he has to do what they say. Uh, and by the way, the, the, everybody tries to do that. The Pharisees will try to do that. The, the, um, the different groups will try to do that. They're going to try to make him king. They're going to take him by force and make him king. Why is it that everybody has these ideas of what everybody else needs to do instead of uh, just simply taking care of your own, your own spiritual walk? All right, now, interestingly enough, when we get after verse 21, we, we don't have in Mark, we don't have described the actual demoniac that he heals. Uh, in Mark's record, in verse 22, it just says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Baal-zebul. Um, Beelzebul, Beelzebub. We'll talk about the different spellings on that here in a moment. Uh, Beelzebub, however you want to pronounce it. Um, they, they accuse him of being demon-possessed. Interesting. As uh, particularly when you consider the utter blasphemy of, of looking, beholding the Son of God, the Spirit filled, spirit-indwelled Son of God, accomplishing the Father's work and calling him Satan. Let's go over to Matthew at this point. As I say, it's a bit awkward. We're going to do a lot of bouncing back and forth because Mark doesn't make any reference to a healing that takes place. But both Matthew and Luke describe the healing. We're told that a demoniac in Matthew... A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man, mute man spoke and saw. I used to know a man that was really critical about the pronunciation of moot. And it, he was very aggravated any time you pronounce the U with the yeah, 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 U sound. And so if you said mute, he would come down hard on you and say, no, it's moot. It's not pronounced mute, it's pronounced moot. And it's a dumb thing to be hung up on because either pronunciation is acceptable depending on your dialect and region and so forth. So I don't know what it is in Texas, but I grew up saying mute and uh, I don't care. Does it really matter? I mean, can we find something more serious to fight about? All right. Thing was, this guy, he was a hick from I don't know where he was from. And he had the dumbest pronunciations of any other word in the, in, the, in the whole dictionary, practically. But the one that drove him up a wall, he always commented on it, was moot. All right, so the demoniac. Now, in, verse, in, in Luke, he's not called a demoniac, but that's what he is. It just says, he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. The demon itself was mute. And because the demon was mute, when it was in possession of the human being, then the result there being the human being was also mute. So the demon was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. In both the Matthew and the Luke account, as well as Mark, uh, this is credited to demonic power. The crowds were amazed. Uh, the, when the Pharisees heard this, 
Matthew 12:24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And you're saying, Who is Beelzebul? Never heard of him. Well, it's another name for Satan, and we'll, de- we'll describe that title for you here in a moment. All right, so Matthew and Luke get very similar at this point. Mark is not contradictory. It's just Mark doesn't reference the, uh, the demoniac himself being cast out. He just describes the accusation then that is made. So point two, Jesus heals a demoniac. And the resultant criticism opens a door of opportunity for teaching. The resultant criticism. I find it remarkable. Jesus never let the criticism destroy him. He never let it hurt his feelings. I'm sure it must have hurt. Nobody likes to be maligned and slandered and ridiculed, especially when you don't deserve it. I mean, at least when you deserve it, you still don't like it, but at least you can admit, okay, I deserve that. (laughs) All right, it's true. There's at least a a tiny part in the back corner of your mind that if it's legitimate, you you still don't like it, but at least you can acknowledge, okay, it's, it's, it's true. With Jesus, of course, none of it was legitimate. All the criticism was satanic. It was all slander from Hod Diabolos, the slanderer. Jesus heals a demoniac, and the resultant criticism opens a door. When we are slandered, we can conciliate. When we are reviled, we can bless. Or we can return evil for evil and just act like the world does. But what does that accomplish? <laughs> that would then be sin, and Jesus doesn't sin. So, if you're criticized, if you're maligned, if you're attacked, consider it all joy. Don't consider it a strange thing. Because they attacked the Lord. Why do you think you claim privileges that he didn't have? Why are we entitled to not be maligned when he was maligned? He views it as an opportunity, an open-door opportunity for teaching angelic conflict principles. Now, here he is. He's face-to-face with a group that he's previously called a brood of vipers. These Pharisees, these scribes, these religious leaders from Jerusalem, they are under demonic teaching. They are under satanic influence. They're not physical offspring of, of, of fallen angels, but they are spiritual offspring in the sense that they are doing the desires of their father. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the things that are pleasing to him. And he's called them a brood of vipers. John the Baptist has called them a brood of vipers. It's clear who they're serving But then there's these bystanders, and they're amazed. Some of them even, let me flip my paper Bible over to Matthew. Some of them are even starting to put two and two together with some previous Bible studies they've looked at having to do with the throne of David. They're starting to say, wait a minute, could this be the son of David? As we look at in verse 23, all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, it's a skeptical question. It's phrased in a skeptical manner, and the the syntax of that Greek question demands the answer to be no. They're asking it incredulously. He can't possibly be the son of David, can he? And so they want the answer to be no. They expect it to be no. They're terrified that it might be yes. But just the fact that they're asking it demonstrates they're starting to think through some things. They're almost afraid of what the answer might be. But it's an opportunity. And because of them, they're going to get some teaching. They're going to get some teaching about 
Beelzebul. They're going to get some teaching about angelic conflict. They're going to describe what happens when a house is divided against itself. And they're going to see, indeed, that the kingdom of God is at hand. It is upon them. And this is just finger work. This is just finger work. Are you excited about this? Big deal. This is the finger of God. Wait till you see the work of his hand. Wait till you see the work of his arm. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he's going to bring Israel back into the land for covenant blessings. This is just finger work. Now, in Matthew's account, Jesus, this is subpoint A, according to Matthew, Jesus healed a blind and mute demoniac. Jesus healed a blind and mute demoniac. The noun for demoniac is just simply a participle from a verb. I'll give that for you there if you want to write it down. Diamonizomai. The present middle participle of diamonizomai. That's what a demoniac is. There should be an I in demoniac. I left out an I right there. Demoniac. It's a typo on paper, too. All right. A blind and mute demoniac. Now, a demoniac, we don't have to worry about this. If you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot be demon-possessed. You cannot be demonized. Demonized might be a better word than demoniac. If, if the ization process communicates better for us. Uh, this is the process of being demonized. That is, a demon has taken control. He has filled you. He is in you, and it's no longer you, but the demon that's speaking, that's acting, that's thinking, that's doing the things that it's doing. So Jesus healed a blind and mute demoniac. Present middle participle of diamonizomai. Now, diamonizomai, like agonizomai and other amai words, this my ending means it's a middle voice verb. Um, meaning that it's happening... And you're all, it's happening to you and you're also receiving the results of the action. It's both, it has both an active and a passive sense. It's a middle voice verb. So you are being demoniac. A demon is controlling you with the result that you are now. It's no longer you. It's now the demon that's saying the things it's saying, doing the things that it's doing. So but when it's used as a participle, basically you just turn it into a noun and it refers to somebody that's possessed by a daimonion. That's your noun. A daimonion is your noun. I'll have more to say on that here in the next point. I'll define daimonion for you. D-A-I-M-O-N-I-O-N. Daimonion. Those don't look like N's, I know. Those look like V's. <laughs> but those are N's. The Greek letter new. So it's pronounced daimonion. Neuter noun. As I said, we don't have to worry about this. Not for a bit. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, then you have God in you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. The Father is in you. The Son is in you, indwelling you from the moment of your salvation. And uh, as this passage here even describes, um, in verse 29, how can anyone enter the strong man's house? 
and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man. You know, we know whose house we are now. We belong to the, to the strongest strong man in the universe because we belong to God himself. And so the omnipotence of God as the strong man, we belong to him. We're his house. We're a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so we can lose the filling through carnality, but we can never lose the indwelling. We, we do belong to God. And we cannot be bound. We cannot be plundered. The unbeliever, though, has no defenses. The unbeliever has no defenses. In medical terms, we talk about immunities, right? Your, your immune system builds up a, an immunity, or you build up a, a tolerance, or you build up a, a resistance. And even things that mutate and change. There's now, I mean, people are developing resistant strains and you know, different uh, viruses, and they're resistant to different penicillin and other uh, antibiotic treatments and whatnot. It's fascinating. The nature of the curse and this fallen body that, that, that mutates and morphs and is always in a negative way. <laughs> Evolutionists hate that. We never mutate for the better. We're always, we're always uh, degenerating because of sin. The curse is degenerative. Everything that mutates gets worse. All right? No matter how many times you watch the X-Men, you're not going to mutate into superpowers. Now, an unbeliever has no resistance to demons. An unbeliever has no choice. If a demon decides to take custody of an unbeliever, it will happen. All, of course, under God's permissive will. All right. Luke, Jesus casts out a mute demon. Jesus heals a blind and mute demoniac. But in Luke's record, Jesus is casting out a mute demon. It describes the adjective mute to the demonion himself. The fact that the demon is mute. And since it's no longer the person but the demon, it's an appropriate statement. The noun demonion is number 1140 in the Strong's Index. It's the very next word. Strong's just alphabetized as index. And uh, so number 1139 is daimonizomai, and number 1140 is daimonion. We did actually a larger study on this back when we did uh, the Galilean ministry of Jesus, uh, episode 5, the demoniac that was healed on the Sabbath day. So we did work on the vocabulary already, uh, pointing out that to the Greeks, a demonion was a spirit being. Let something inferior to a theos. Theos meaning God. So to the Greeks, Zeus was a theos. He was king of the gods. And uh, Apollo was a theos. And Athena and Aphrodite, they were theoi. That's masculine. They were thei. They were feminine gods. Okay? You had all your gods. They were all theoi. But... They viewed daimonion as being greater than humans, but less than gods. Now, that's coming from a polytheistic worldview, but it's not that far off, is it? Inferior to God himself, but clearly superior to human beings, is the angelic realm of existence. We must recognize the angelic realm of existence is superior to present humanity. Now, glorified humanity in eternity will be above the angels. But for the time being, 
present humanity, mortal humanity, is inferior to the angels. I think we're solid on that. When Jesus Christ became flesh, he became for a little while lower than the angels. And that's the pattern as we draw it out. Oftentimes I draw it on paper. Let me switch to this. We draw it on paper as such that God, angels, and man. Now, just because angels fell, you know, one third of them became fallen angels. And, of course, two thirds remained um, faithful. We can call them faithful angels. Sometimes they're called elect angels, but that always bothers me. I want somebody to define for me the uh, doctrine of angelic election. <laughs> Find me some Bible verses to point that out. All right. But regardless, even the fallen angels are still higher than humanity. In, intrinsically. In their might, in their power, in their glory. Satan is still glorious. You ever think about that? But he is glorious in a fallen, in a fallen way. Now... The nature of the fall, this is what I always find fascinating, the nature of the fall is here was Satan. And he was the top dog of all these angels. You know, he was the number one. Full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Then you have uh, others like Michael and Gabriel, these archangel levels. And then you've got your other minions and lackeys and messengers. They're, they're in, a, in, a, in a hierarchy. They're in a, a rank structure. Not all angels are equal. Now, Satan was the highest. He was higher than any other angel below him, but that, he wasn't satisfied with that. He lusted after a seat that he was not entitled to. And so he comes up here and he says, I will be like the Most High God. He exalted himself, which is the pattern we have to avoid the pattern of evil, the pattern of selfishness, self-promotion, pride and all of that. But God lowered himself. And this is the kenosis. And he came down and he didn't just come down to the angel level. I think the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord that we find in the Old Testament, when Jesus Christ appears in a Christophany as an angel level, that was one measure of humility in itself. But he then went even beyond that through the virgin birth, and he became for a little while lower than the angels. Emptied himself, that is, he laid aside his privileges, he stopped exercising his his. Uh, attributes of deity and he accepted the limit the finite limitations of human mortality and because of this now he was faithful down here at this level so in his resurrection and glory he is now much higher than the angels and he's not only is he much higher than the angels but he's bringing us much higher than the angels all right that's the nature of our glorification that's what uh, now, how much of that did Satan understand? Did he know that these worms? That's, that's what he considers humanity. I mean, what, what are we compared to him? He gives us no more thought than we would give a typical cockroach. It's just something to be stomped on. You don't really want them around. They disgust you. So you stomp on them. That's how fallen angels view humanity. Did he know that our destiny was to be exalted above him? Did he understand that? I think he did. The rabbis thought he did. And that was the nature of his exaltation, that he wanted to exalt himself. He was unwilling to accept that lesser position, and yet uh, it's 
to God's glory that we accept the lessers. God, God's glory that we serve rather than be served. Satan couldn't accept that. Anyway, that's how we draw that out. And so, back to this. Yes, a demonion is a transcendent incorporeal being that is not physical, spiritual, incorporeal being with a status between humans and deities, recognizing that there's one deity, God himself. A demonion was lower than any theos and included such creatures as nymphs, fauns, and satyrs. I don't know if you ever read anything on mythology, if you know who the nymphs were, uh, the fauns and satyrs and things like that. They were uh, considered daimonion, and the Greeks were right. <laughs> they were indeed demons. All right. Anyway, we did, we did much more on that back in episode 5, and if you have your notes there, you can look that up. Thirdly, the Lord's authority in casting out demons prompted some to consider him as being the son of David. Prompted some. See, the thing about all these miracles was that it was leading to some uncomfortable conclusions. Even Nicodemus had to admit. In John 3, he says, we know you've come from God as a teacher because no one can do these miracles that you're doing unless God sent them. The Pharisees had to acknowledge that. They couldn't, they couldn't write it off. At least not. they couldn't write it off in chapter 3. But now it appears that they found what they think could be an explanation. Oh, well, he's doing these signs and wonders by demonic empowerment. Just as Pharaoh's magicians did signs and wonders by demonic empowerment. Just as sorcery and witchcraft and divining and all these things, they use witchcraft. They use, divine, uh, they use demonic powers. See, by the way, I hope you understand that stuff is real. I mean, you can read fictional accounts and people get all buggy about stupid things. They think the world's coming to an end because of some Harry Potter fictional series or something. I'm not worried about fiction. But the reality of demons in our world today is serious business. And the largest church of Satan in the United States of America is San Francisco, California. You know where the second largest church of Satan is? Right here, Austin, Texas. We live in a haunt of demons. Well, now there are some who started to ponder, can this possibly be the son of David? But their question is a skeptical one, and some wanted more miracles as proof. This just kills me. All right, let's go over now to Luke. See, I'm, I'm trying to identify with you folks. I'm doing the same thing. I'm using paper and bookmarks. Luke 11, 16. The easier thing for me would be just go back to my Bible software and look at it there. Some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. You realize how insane that is? He just gave them a sign. He cast out a demon. Now they're saying, well... Show us a sign so that we know that this other sign was really from heaven. How is a sign going to prove what they're already doubting is a sign? You recognize what this is. Unbelievers do it today. They say, well, prove, prove to me. Prove to me that God exists. If God wants me to believe in Him, then He's going to have to prove to me. And what they do is they set up this... this uh, 
it's, it's, a, it's a straw man argument. It's a dummy thing. They'll never be satisfied. They say, well, God needs to, God needs, if God wants me to believe in him, if, if God really is real, then he needs to come to earth and he needs to tell me who he is. You know what I tell him? He did that. That's right. He did that. He did that 2,000 years ago. He came to earth and he told us all who he was. And Jesus Christ did that. Are you ready to accept him? <laughs> well, no. Because they want their own personal burning bush. They want their own personal Christophany. They want their own individualized Damascus Road experience. And if God won't do that, then they don't want any part of him. Well, isn't that something? You must be really special. <laughs> if you're entitled to your own personal Christophany, I'm sure he's got nothing better to do than to come to you. Uh, we understand. The person I'm describing in this is, of course, fictional. Any resemblance to persons living or dead is strictly coincidental. But the person I'm describing there, you've encountered them, I've encountered them. They are not being convicted by the Holy Spirit, being drawn by the Father. They are not legitimately questioning and asking for information. That's a pearls before swine issue and you can walk away with a clean conscience. Be prepared to give an answer, but don't be casting your pearls before swine. So they were saying to test him, to tempt him as a snare. They were demanding of him a sign from heaven. I'm sure that's the Peirazzo there. And yep, there's your Peirazzo there in verse 16. So others then, to tempt him, to Peirazzo him, were asking for a sign. Remember, he couldn't do any sign unless the Father gave him the sign. So if they're trying to entice him and tricking him into, you know, do a sign for us, then potentially it's a sin. If he was to just get all mad at him and say, okay, here's a sign and blast him to the moon or something, you know, <laughs> that'd be a good sign, wouldn't it? Here, you're on the moon, you know, convinced yet? All right. So some were asking, considering him to be the son of David. But their question is a skeptical one and some wanted more miracles as proof. And so we want to learn how to be discerning. We talked about this in our evangelism class in, in the pastor's ministry workshop. We want to be discerning. If questions are being asked, that can be very positive. Shows that they're thinking about it, they're looking at it, they're, they're being convicted by the Holy Spirit, they're being drawn by the Father, and unless they're drawn by the Father, they're not going to come to Christ. And so if somebody's asking these kind of questions, that can be wonderful. Give them those answers. But also be aware that if it's a skeptical question, if it's a, if it's a question that underneath it is unbelief, un, underneath it is hatred and hostility, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? All right. Yes, that is a question. I wouldn't view that as positive volition. I wouldn't view that as someone being convicted, someone being drawn, someone who really wants answers. If God's a God of love, then why is there so much suffering in this world? If, if, if Jesus really loves you, this I know because the Bible tells me so, well then why does my loved one have to go through two and a half years of pain and suffering and stage four colon cancer? God can't really be a God of love or he wouldn't allow that. See, you can tell, all right? That's... That's hostility. <laughs> Say, well, there's answers to all those questions, but uh, you don't want to hear them. I'll be praying for you. Let it go. Just let it go. 
All right. Point four. The brood of vipers accuses the Lord of being possessed and using satanic power to cast out Satan. The brood of vipers accuses the Lord of being possessed. We saw that in Mark 3.22. Saying he's possessed. And using satanic power to cast out Satan, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. We'll have notes on these as well. Now, it's an interesting accusation. I mean, just the fact that they're making an accusation is, is that, that speaks volumes. Because the nature of accusing and excusing is not our role as redeemed uh, believers walking in the newness of light under the influence of grace and so forth. That's not, that's not the Christian way of life. Excuse, accusing and excusing, that's the role of sin, that's under the influence of pride, that's under the influence of the doctrines of demons, satanic influence and teaching, making these accusations. The devil's always been accusatory. Even his I wills are accusatory. When he says, I will, each I will is an accusation that God didn't. And so because God didn't, I will. God didn't seat me high enough, so I'll do it. God didn't give me enough honors, so I'll take them. And Jesus says, you know, it's not, you're not supposed to be exalting yourself, taking the honor to yourself. If He promotes you, you're promoted. If He anoints you, you're anointed. So everything is accusatory in pride in Satan's mindset. He is the accuser. Night and day he accuses, um, Jesus tells the, uh, the uh, tribulational martyrs, he accuses your brethren night and day. He is the accuser. Now, you can't just, if somebody levels an accusation, you don't just say, well, you're doing that under satanic influence. Trust me. Human beings can, in their own carnality, launch into accusations. But the pattern they're following when they do that is a satanic pattern. So whether it's prompted by a satanic influence or whether it is just simply prompted by a human carnal influence, it still is following a satanic pattern rather than following God's pattern through the example of Jesus Christ. Now, in, in Mark it says that he was being possessed. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke it says that he was doing it by this power. So we read it in verse 24 of Matthew 12. The Pharisees heard this. They said, this man casts out demons. And ekbalo by this, the same vocabulary in all three Gospels, ekbalo. Balo is to throw or to cast, and ek is out like exit. So ekbalo is uh, to cast out. It's the same vocabulary throughout all three Gospels. But he casts out demons only by Beelzebul. And we'll give you a vocabulary and study on who Beelzebul is. Beelzebub in uh, the Old Testament. All right. The ruler of demons. He's not a demon, but he's the ruler of demons. He himself is Satan, the fallen angel, the uh, highest of the fallen angels. Uh, same thing in Mark 3.22. He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. 
And same thing in Luke 11. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So the accusation there is being made in every case. So point, or no, point five, who is this Beelzebub? Beelzebul. Beelzebul. You want just a clue? Hold. Do you have enough fingers? You're right now you're in Matthew, you're in Mark, and you're in Luke. Okay? And if you're in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then you're already seeing three of the four places in the New Testament where Beelzebul occurs. The other one, if you just want to flip two pages back to Matthew chapter 10, you'll find a use of Beelzebul there. Matthew 10:25. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So if Jesus Christ is maligned and called Beelzebul, we can expect it as well. That's the nature of insanity, the nature of evil. It calls good evil and evil good. He calls Jesus Christ Beelzebul. We're called the heretics. And we're the ones with the truth. All right? So... The, the synoptic accounts for this episode, Matthew 12, Mark 3, Luke 11, and this extra verse I just showed you, Matthew 10, 25, that's it. The only places in the New Testament where Beelzebul occurs. In the Old Testament, we have Beelzebul in one passage, 2 Kings chapter 1. So I don't know what you're going to do with your fingers, but somehow manipulate your Bible to 2 Kings. Chapter 1, the very beginning of 2 Kings. 1 Kings is coming to an end, 2 Kings is beginning. At least in the English Bible. It's all one book in Hebrew. It's all one book, and by the way, it's that one book is called 2 Kings. <laughs> because First and Second Samuel is also one book, and that's called 1 Kings. Anyway. Um... Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Yeah, that's the happy news. <laughs> All right. Remember Ahab and Jezebel? They're dead. Okay. Uh, they were wicked, although Ahab actually had a bit of repentance there at the end of his life. Jezebel didn't. Anyway, they're dead. And that serves as kind of a dividing line between our English first and second um, kings. So 2 Kings gets started now. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria. Remember I told you, kings, you've got to stay off the roof. Stay off the roof. Avoid those upper chambers. So he fell through the lattice, which was in Samaria, and he became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baalzebub. Baalzebub or Baalzebub. The, the, the shurik, as we learned last night in Hebrew class, is a long oo sound. And so rather than bub, it should be boob. Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. He's, he's possibly terminal. He doesn't know, but he wants information. And so he, wants, he sends his messengers to go ask Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, capital city of the Philistines. Philistines had five capital cities. One of the five was Ekron. 
But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? <laughs> what are you going to him for? First of all, he doesn't exist. He's just a demon posing as a god. He doesn't have any answers. Why, why are you going to Ekron to ask their god? You're, you're a king of Israel. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up. It's remarkable. Was this a terminal illness? Could he have recovered if he had inquired of Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God of Israel? Could he have required? Uh, I mean, could he have recovered? I believe he could have. Because the statement in verse 4 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And you wonder, was it because, was that sin unto death applied? I'm getting a little bit of a preview because tonight we're going to take a look at the sin unto death. But was that applied as a divine discipline consequence to his decision there to inquire of Beelzebub rather than acquiring of Yahweh, Jehovah Elohim? So you shall not come down from that bed. And then Elijah departed. So verse 5, when the messengers returned to him, he said, why have you returned? You know, you're back too early. You couldn't possibly have traveled to Ekron and back. They just out and gone. You know, it's like you're out running an errand and then you show up and your wife says, well, that was quick. You're like, yeah, I forgot the checkbook. I forgot, you know, I forgot my wallet or I forgot something. You know, I didn't make it all the way to the store and back. I, I made it to the driveway and came back inside. So the messengers returned to him. <laughs> well, why have you returned? They said, well, a man came up to meet us and he said, go return to the king who sent you. And uh, here was this message, a real sarcastic message. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you've gone up and you shall surely die. And he said, well, what kind of man was he? Well, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle around his loins. And he said, aha, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Didn't, wasn't dressed like your typical Baptist uh, pastor. All right. Anyway, it's a great story. It's a wonderful story. I like it. And then the story that comes after, it's wonderful too, when these 50s keep going up the hill and getting blasted. All right. Well, so here's the ministry of Elijah. Elijah's got history with Baal. Right? Back in the Ahab and Jezebel days, Elijah had a wonderful contest with the prophets of Baal. Elijah even was able to taunt and mock Baal. Because, of course, Baal doesn't exist. You know, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Shout louder. You know, and they're cutting themselves and screaming and doing all this stuff, trying to get fire to descend on this altar. And it wasn't happening. Elijah had a great victory on that day. So Elijah's got experience when it comes to Baal. And Baalzebub, this, this um, compound form of Baal, I'm out of time, we'll have to... This is a fun word study. We'll, we'll spend some time on it next week because we're in the Gospels. We're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're looking at the Greek of Beelzebul, but it's, Beelzebul is not a Greek word. Beelzebul is a Hebrew word that's been brought into Greek, spoken by these Jewish people here in, in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it becomes a fun word study because we have to examine the Greek, we have to examine the Hebrew, we have to recognize the English. What is this Lord of the Flies anyway? 
<laughs> okay. And then all this medieval Roman legends about Lord of the Flies and all this other stuff. Well, we'll deal with that. So, um, anyway, this is probably a good place to stop because if I get started on Beelzebub, and it's already 11 o'clock anyway, so let's stop here and uh, we'll pick up with Beelzebub next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this study. And, and we do thank you, Father. This we can, we can be like Elijah. We can mock. We can be confident. We can be uh, at peace and relaxed. But at the same time, we also never want to lose sight of the seriousness. Father, we recognize that if we take this lightly, if we, uh, if we fail to acknowledge our dependence upon you in the angelic conflict, then we will be torn to shreds. Father, uh, we do identify in Second Peter in the book of Jude how, uh, how wrong the false teachers are there that revile and don't tremble before the angelic majesties. So, Father, we have an appropriate level of, uh, of diligence and we are on the alert. We are in our armor. Uh, but, Father, given that we're on the alert, we're in our armor and we're depending upon you, <coughs> these adversaries are, uh, are, are laughable. He who sits in the heavens laughs and we join in that, Father, because it's just insanity that Satan and Beelzebub and Apollyon and Abaddon and all these other fallen angels and demons, they think they can win. And Father, that's just insane. I thank you that we know the Omega result. We know that your plan proceeding from Alpha to Omega cannot be thwarted. We are headed towards Omega. Jesus Christ will be exalted and glorified. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And Father, we are encouraged by this wonderful confidence. So Father, bless us as we depart. Keep our armor on. Keep us on the alert. We know when we delve into demonic studies that the conflict intensifies. But Father, we, uh, we can smile at the future because we know the truth of your word. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.